Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Art. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Events and Lectures Programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event, which invites our panel of speakers to consider the role of art in reforming collective ideas of identity in times of national crisis. In the midst of Brexit and political upheaval in the UK and abroad, how are ideas about national identity portrayed through art? How can art and spaces for art define identity? And what is the role of the wider art community in doing this? Tonight's event springboards from 1930s America, when in the wake of the 1929 Wall Street crash, the government set up programs such as the Works Progress Administration. This scheme was designed to generate art that re-examined American values and culture and define a new national identity for the United States. Using this as a catalyst for our conversation tonight, we refocus on the contemporary UK art world, looking at how artists today are responding in times of national crisis and examining how new forces such as Brexit and the narrative around ISIS is shaping our understanding of British identity today. So joining us to discuss all of this and I'm sure more, we have Dr. David Dimboza, Reader in Museology at UAL, Course Leader for MA Curating and Collections at Chelsea College of Arts, and the Research Fellow for the Transnational Art, Identity and Nation Research Centre. We have artist Matab Hussein, known for his photographic work exploring multiculturalism and the dynamic relationship between identity, heritage and displacement, some of which is currently on display at Autograph ABP Gallery on Rivington Place until the 1st of July, with his book titled You Get Me, due to be published next month. Also joining us is the director of Liverpool Biennale, Sally Talent, who was the previous head of programmes at Serpentine Gallery and is currently a commissioner for the Institute for Public Policy Research Commission on Economic Justice. And joining us to chair tonight's discussion is the writer and broadcaster Afua Hearst, who presents on the Sky News flagship debate show, The Pledge, and is currently finishing up her first book, which explores British Britishness and identity, due to be published in spring 2018. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming tonight's panel. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming. We've got a really wonderful panel tonight. And I'm going to start off by coming to you, Matab. Um, because you're the artist on yes. the panel. And I, I, I think the reason you're here is because your work has really been contributing to, and, and I think also disrupting a little bit, the narrative around identity and Britishness. So tell us a little bit. Start by telling us about your work and what it represents. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I've been making, well, so my You Get Me series has, has taken just under 10 years to get to the London stage. And I guess the eureka moment happened when I was in my second year at Goldsmiths. And I, I was actually being taught by David um, at the time and he we were doing a post-colonial module and from there he introduced me to black artists, people like Yinka and Chris Ophelia, Sonia Boyce. I read work around Franz Fanon and Stuart Hall and this was two years after 9-11 and I thought wow actually no one's making work about British Asians and the complexities of their identity and how difficult it is for them to be living in in Britain today. Um, and it took me five years to actually get the courage to start making the work. And in between that period, I was working in museums and galleries. And my last job was at the National Portrait Gallery. And I loved museum spaces, but I felt very invisible. I never saw myself on the walls. Um, and when I did see myself, they were incredibly, the projects were quite patronizing. They weren't really talking about the complexity. So out of sheer frustration, I left museums and became an artist and just went back to Birmingham, which is where I grew up. And I walked the streets. I walked the streets for about five years, um, connecting with over 400 individuals. Um, I interviewed them. Um, we had over, um, I don't know, 200,000 words. And it was really about trying to ask these men, well, under this political pressure, like, how do you feel? Where, do you, where is your sense of belonging? Do you feel British? And I wanted to celebrate them as fine art portraiture. And this, and this is the body work that's really come about. And what's your, I mean, hard to summarize hundreds of interviews, but what's your kind of analysis of what's happening um, in terms of identity? What's their sense of identity and belonging? 
I think um, they're really struggling. Um, they they are so confused and. You know, on the one hand, they're desperate to be part of Western society, but they are told quite clearly that they don't belong here. And so as a result, they are they're angry. And, you know, you're talking about the second, third, fourth generation now. Young men who, you know, are in early 20s of, of, you know, 9-11 happened 17 years ago. And they're very aware of the labels that have been thrown on them. And... um, it's there's there's the frustration of saying look we're not British enough. There's there, there is difficulties in terms of their sense of masculinity. Um, you know their male patriarchal role over the last thirty years has been redefined, and you know I I feel that the men are going through this period of male redundancy as the women are far more educated, far more driven career wise. So they're leaving these guys behind essentially, and um, I think. There's still this confusion, like, who are we? Are we British? Are we Asian? But actually, what I'm trying to say in the work is that we are a hybrid, and we need to celebrate the fact that we are both and embody that and move that into a kind of an international space. And that's the kind of narrative and conversation that I'm having. But also what's really important is this idea of having a national identity in terms of our history and representation. It's really key. Uh, You know, we are so invisible. Uh, we're not on the billboards, we're not in the newspapers, we're not in the magazines, and we've been in this country for over 200 years. And it's why why my work has a slight fashion element to it, because I want to comment about the idea of, well, we need to be belonging in those spaces, really. Thanks, Matab. David, yours and Matab's paths have crossed before. Um, But I just want to start by kind of going back to the origins of this debate, which is the exhibition America After the Fall and looking at 1930s America where there was a very conscious attempt to use art to reconstruct a sense of national identity in in America. Do you think that um, art institutions and spaces can or should be doing something similar at this moment and and recreating identities in the kind of way that Matab is talking about? Yes, I think very much so. And I think one of the things that is interesting about the show uh, upstairs, I don't know how many people in the audience have got to see it, had the chance to see it, but it is an an amazing show in the sense that it makes a claim to uh, talk about this incredible period of American life, a period that in some senses reflects a, a period now, or some people claim at least the reflections with the moment now. But what's interesting about the show is to note that there are works there, such as uh, Jackson Pollock's work, Untitled, a piece from 1938 to 41, where you see that the work has been influenced by his relationships with Mexican artists. So you see in that work, uh, and in a show which is devoted to a particular period of American history, that America, even in that historic moment, was what we could term hybrid. And I think that that point that uh, Matab made, and I think something that appears in his work, is about how important hybridity is to our understanding of the way in which nationhood is formed. And I mean this not just in terms of hybridity in relation to the body, which is a way in which we might think about it in terms of thinking about how you know, debates about mixed race, about miscegenation, et cetera, have taken place. But what I want us to think about is about hybridity of the mind and the way in which the British uh, mindset, if you like, has always been hybrid. And this notion that, uh, if you like, that uh, it's now a moment for Britain to uh, become global I think we need to be thinking about it as in terms of Britain returning to being global, because Britain has always been global. And it's that kind of globalism of British work, British creativity, the British cultural imaginary, which means that hybridity is here and is here to stay. That, that strikes me as something that's definitely at, at odds with kind of parts of the mainstream political narrative at the moment. You know, the idea that Brexit could take us back to an imagined time when we were an island alone. But you, you've chosen as your images the, some images from the Turner Prize list, which, see, which suggests that arts institutions are maybe not following that narrative and are embracing the kind of global identities in Britain. Just tell us a little bit about why you've chosen well, these. Well, I like what you're saying in terms of talking about the imagination because I talk about the cultural imaginary. And what I mean by that is the way in which cultures through different institutions produce different ways in which they imagine how they want to be. And the force of the imagination cannot be underestimated. And I think that 
institutions have a part to play in this, in the sense that artists have to make the work that they want to work that they want to make. We can't give artists a responsibility as such to represent the nation. I find that quite suspect when that, that kind of uh, argument is put forward. But institutions do have this kind of responsibility, and we can ask them to take that on board. And I think the uh, jury of the Turner Prize this year have been very brave in terms of speaking to the kinds of questions about hybridity and reaffirming that. So when you see the work of uh, people on the list like Lubaina Hamid or Hervin Anderson or Andrea Butner, you actually understand that most of these artists, in fact, all of them, have a hybrid connection. So Lubaina Hamid with uh, her relationship with Zanzibar and Tanzania, Andrea Butner with um, Germany, Hervin Anderson with uh, Jamaica, you see that across the list this year, all of these artists have this connection between Britain and elsewhere. So it's about that dialogue that is part of the hybridity of Britishness that is returned to the fore. Thank you. Sally, do you agree with David that it's not the burden of an artist to represent the identity of the nation, but it's, it's institutions that should be kind of constructing that narrative? I think it's together that we need to construct those uh, narratives. So the institutions that we build reflect the values of our culture and they present the work by artists that we choose to present within our institutions. So as someone who's worked both in kind of building-based organisations, making choices about whose work we might present and how, uh, to someone now who collaborates with partner organisations and presents work across a whole city, uh, in the streets as well, so abandoning the institution because that, that in itself is a barrier for some people, I think. Um, I think it's um, it's a, it's it's our responsibility to value what culture represents, and I think what's interesting about this moment in time, you know, politically we're facing uncertainty, but actually um, it's more urgent than ever that we put culture back at the heart of society. You know, the removal of arts and culture from curriculum in schools. And the, the, the idea that what we need to construct is individuals who no longer know how to create their own identity and express their own ideas, but rather to consume other people's ideas of who they might be, if you, if you think about that as the way that we now teach in our schools, I think it's a very dangerous time. And so I think institutions and artists together need to think about how we, how we really make quite forceful arguments for making sure that we represent um, the kind of diversity of voices and the hybridity of voices that defines who we are on this little so, island. So if you've just diagnosed where institutions maybe have been going wrong, mm -hmm. what would you say are the symptoms? I think change is very difficult. So I think tradition and the way that things have done in the past, sometimes people find it really hard to do things in a different way. And I think when people are faced with something that doesn't, I mean, this room's interesting, right? So if you're faced with art that maybe doesn't come from a tradition and a language and a narrative that you fully, fully understand, it might be intimidating. And I think curators, in order to retain their knowledge, actually have to say that they don't know something. So not knowing where somebody's work might be coming from and it not being recognizable as something you comprehend because it's coming from somewhere else uh, means that that destabilizes your institution. And so everything you think you thought you knew becomes questioned. And if everything you think you thought you knew is no longer what anybody knows anymore, suddenly your knowledge and your authority is challenged. So I think it's those things that mean institutions find it difficult to change. But, but we were just talking on the way in. I'm feeling terribly hopeful and optimistic at the moment because I think, we've, I think the Turner Prize is an absolutely brilliant list and I think it's about time that those artists are getting that recognition. And there's a younger generation of artists and curators who don't who are making up, who are, who are having different kinds of conversations. And we can expect our institutions to change, not only because of, of, the, um, of our deeper understanding of these histories, but also because of technology and the way it's changed how we understand and connect with the world and the international conversations we have. So I, I feel that we're in an exciting moment of change. It's rare and lovely to hear such an optimistic perspective. Matal, I'm conscious that as somebody who has gone into the arts world 
exactly because you didn't feel that you were represented there. How have you been received? Um, yeah, lots of different ways. Um, I have to say this, you know, my You Get Me series is my, is, was my baby and I kind of carried it through and, and, and that actually got me many commissions, awards, different solo shows, um, but no one wanted to show this work. And I, I became incredibly frustrated because I had so much to say about this particular series. Um, and and um, there, were, there were conversations about having the work in certain spaces, but I would never be offered the, the main gallery. And I would be really frustrated because here are these men who tell me every day that there's no point assimilating, integrating. What's the point? Because we're never going to be part of it. And I never wanted to show, like, bring these guys into the show next to the lose and say, "Hey, guys, look, we made it. We're in. You know, we're here." And so I just kept saying, "No, no, no." And and Mark Seeley at Autograph has been following my work for the last six, seven years. And you know, I'm. It's not all doom and gloom. I've had some wonderful commissions. You know, in my career, I'm, by the end of the year, I'll have four publications, and my work's toured globally. So I'm not, it's not a bad thing. But I think. Talking about these particular issues, issues around Muslims, masculinity, was a really tough thing to do. And a lot of institutions were very scared. And, you know, if you think about the Salman Rushdie affair and what happened there and the crisis and the fear mongering. And, and so there, there, was that, there was that fear, really. But what's been amazing is that having this show in London and I think Trump and Brexit has made us realize that we need to have some serious and very honest conversations. And I don't think my work, if it came out four years ago, would, would have had this much impact. Um, I think we're ready to, we're, we're realizing that the, you know, the politics of hate and divide and where our society's going, that we, we as cultural institutions, and we need to have that conversation. And we're, I think, you know, there's a report done recently in America which showed that museums were the most trusted source of information um, behind news, you know, ahead of newspapers, and and that's a great thing to to celebrate, I think. And we did the show at Autograph. We spent a long time looking at the edit, looking at the different captions that we can place, and that's not going to change. So I'm standing next to it. Mark Seeley at Autograph is standing next to it, and. And as a result, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great, really, yeah. You know, there's quite a lot of optimism here, but you've talked about the ambivalent gaze. Is, are we ready to receive new ideas and new representation in a, in a sophisticated, nuanced way? Yes and no. <laughs> I'm sure you would expect me to say something like that. I mean, I say it because I think it, there's often a question of the back and forth in, in, in these debates. And one of the ways in which I, I think about that, and I, I I'm, go back to the moment, where, uh, you know, back in, in July, when there was the, the result, and having the feeling of, oh my God, Britain has turned its back on Europe, and having the sense that, well, now Britain must turn to face the world. And in that turning to face the world, it's a return. Mm -hmm. And in a return, what we have to think about is we're Back, we're going back to something, but it's never back to the same place because the place, the world has changed. So in terms of Britain, its cultural institutions, its political institutions open itself to the world again in a different way. We have to think about the kinds of histories that we've built in relation to our imperial histories, in relation to our post-colonial histories. So we're not talking about empire, we're not talking about commonwealth, we're talking about something else. And what is that something else? It's something that we also have to, on one hand, remember, but also, on the other hand, imagine. And it's the relationship between memory and imagination which really is going to create the rub here. Because I think Matab is right in terms of saying, you know, there have to be some honest conversations. And some of those honest conversations involve memory, difficult memories. And this is something that um, Paul Gilroy has written about in Postcolonial Melancholy, about the refusal to remember the tough stuff, not the great victories and the, you know, the victories over fascism, which does have to be remembered. But the memory has to be complete, and at the moment it's incomplete. That memory must then work in combination with imagination, and it's with the imagination that then you can have the hope, that you can have the engagement, you can have the creativity. But it's the two working together that I think makes the difference. I mean, that's especially relevant to Liverpool, where you're based, isn't it? Because Liverpool has tried 
you know, in recent years to grapple with its past in, I think we probably all agree, a more honest way. Yeah. I don't know if, what you think about how perfect that's been and are we ready to, have we dealt enough with memory to kind of start imagining new futures? I don't think it's a stop-start scenario. I think that you're in a continual process of learning about, um, learning a little bit more, and then as you learn more, you learn you know less, and less is more, and then the world has changed and somebody comes and reminds you that actually the position you've just taken so confidently is terribly wrong. Um, so I think, um, I mean, Liverpool is interesting. It's a port city, and it's a labour stronghold. So if, and it also, um, voted very strongly to remain in Europe. So, and it's a city that's been defined by the movement of people, some disgraceful movements of people, and some um, because of the trade. Uh, you know, it's, it's you mentioned some Gilroy, positive... Kind of, he yeah. describes it as an Atlantic exactly. city, doesn't he? Exactly. So, um, I think, you know, I actually opened the biennial uh, a week after the Brexit um, vote had happened, and I was in terrible shock, I think we all were. And it was all that we could talk about because actually I work with artists from all over the world. A huge part of my funding comes from Europe. I work, I work with, you know, a lot of the artists I work with um, benefit from the visas that we have, you know, and, and that includes people coming from all over Africa through Europe to the UK. And already that's changed. Already next week, some of my artists can't make it to Liverpool because I can't get their visas passed through and already the, the pound has dropped and already we're a very different place so I think the it's it's really very real the impact that I'm feeling and um, I also think you know um, in 2008 Liverpool was the European city of culture which is a decade ago and on the streets as you walk through the city the paving stones are etched with a sign that says built with the support of the European Union. And this is written into the streets of Liverpool. And I think that, um, you know, it's, a, it's painful, the idea that we're going to lose, to me, dialogue that's been so hard to build and of which we were so proud, being able to talk with and to people from all over the world. And suddenly, it feels, to me, my world is getting smaller. So I agree with you that we need to look to a bigger world, but it's already being blocked, those conversations, bureaucratically and literally and financially, for my organisation. There's so much to talk about with Brexit, but just sticking on the issue of funding, because that is uh, such an important issue here. Regardless of Brexit, we're not seeing um, a 1930s-like you know, in, input of, of resource and embracing art as a mean of, of reconstructing identity, are we? How are the funding issues facing the arts going to affect our ability to feed into this debate? It's huge. Absolutely enormous. So first of all, Arts Council is fighting hard to retain its investment from government. Person Can you give us any sense of the scale? Yeah. What, what is it like for, for an arts institution at the moment? In the so at the moment, I would say most arts institutions outside of London are relatively heavily reliant on our Arts Council funding, and they also get funding from their local authorities. It's quite difficult to raise corporate sponsorship or individual donor um, kind of um, contributions when all of the wealth is actually pretty much focused here in London. And I do think that that lack of economic justice and a lack of distribution of wealth is part of the narrative you're talking about in your work. Because actually, if you go to Birmingham or Leeds or Liverpool and find that there's, you know, we're no longer an industrial nation. A lot of people move to those cities to work, and there is no work in the same way. So when you have generations of unemployment and a lack of aspiration, I know that sounds depressing. Uh, and I know I said I was optimistic. I am optimistic. But I think that's part of the narrative. It's, and it's deep, you know, if people don't see themselves as having being able to afford an education because now they need to pay fees or even and then if they're going to go and uh, work in the arts an institution's not going to be able to support their practice because they're not going to have the resources i think we're looking at a pretty dark situation so concretely um i'm also on the arts council uh, council as well as being on the economic justice panel and most arts organizations have been on standstill funding for quite a long time, which means they haven't had any increase, so they can't grow. So this growth we're looking for from our organisations is very hard for them to do. And then councils and local authorities have been heavily impacted by government cuts, 
which means they can barely deliver on their um, um, statutory services. And of course, the arts is not a statutory service. So we, we're all expecting to get heavy, heavily cut in the next few years. And some parts of Lancashire have had 100% cuts recently. And that's, that's, that's little museums in the middle of, you know, brilliant small museums in Burnley or Rochdale that serve that community that can no longer function. And those are communities which have, which are, have been abandoned from the textiles industry. You've got mass, very large migrant communities from all over the world, from Pakistan, Romania, Poland, people who've been living there, who moved there to work, who no longer have work. It's a mess. So, yeah, so, and the institutions are tied up in that. I know that's a long answer to your question, no. but the kind of wider political context means it is hard. And the hardest thing, and I'm looking at you because the hardest thing is being able to nurture artists. Because what if one of these boys wants to be an artist? That, that's exactly what I wanted to ask Matab. As an artist, how is this affecting you? And how will this affect your unique, obviously, but future Matabs? kind of responding to the need to express something that isn't currently being expressed? Well, I have to say I've been really fortunate. Um, I've had lots of support from the Arts Council and British Council. And, and you know, w with every show I've had, we've definitely brought in a new audience. Um, the show that opened recently, we had over 500 people attend the opening and, and it was very diverse. We had pretty much mainly British Muslim young millennials and they were incredible. And I think I, I'm really hopeful. I feel that, you know, I'm really privileged to be able to carve out this niche for myself and, and 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 along the way we are bringing in new artists and um but i'm yeah i'm i'm just as scared as everyone else i'm kind of thinking well what's going to happen to, you know if the, all the funding gets cut like where how do i survive just as much as the organization and i'm really. interested in what sally was saying about london being a little bit protected but outside london there being this real glut of, of resource I mean, you've kind of got both perspectives because you're from birmingham but yeah. you're based here now, what do you think about the kind of regional disparity? It's really tough. Um, I, I was talking to Jonathan Watkins and, and the Icon, and he was very open about the cuts that he's having at, at his gallery, and I was in complete shock by just how very little money that they were surviving on, and they were they were they, they were just yeah they were, they were really struggling, and I guess I don't know I I I haven't experienced it myself, but I think you know, over the next few years that's when the real test is going to happen. Um, and I, th I think it's a really sad thing that funding is being cut in the arts because I really experienced the, the transformative possibilities in art. It gave me a voice, it gave me a sense of purpose and identity. Clearly my work is giving that voice to other people. They feel incredibly connected. Um, and um, yeah, we're in, a, we're in a really dangerous place to really start to lose ourselves as a society because it's in art that we can really have these these conversations, yeah. David, bringing this back to identity, what does it mean for us if we are trying, you know, in adverse circumstances to create a dialogue about Britishness and identity, not to have different perspectives, regional perspectives? Because it strikes me that Matab's work is very much located in um, the Midlands and, you know, the Asian male in, an, in a city that's different from London, whereas in London we have a kind of multicultural bubble and a different relationship with heritage and identity. What do you think this means for us in terms of how we're going to construct Britishness? It means we're going to have to have a fight. And I think the fight that has to be um, taken on board is actually what do we want? What do we want to remember? And what do we see as part of our uh, national cultural heritage? And I'm, I'm, I'm struck by what Sally's saying in terms of, I know that there's the, the small museums around the country are really kind of facing facing, really facing trouble. But my question is, why does the museum in Burnley, why is it seen as serving the Burnley community? Why is it given the responsibility of the local authority whose budgets are being cut on every way to support those? They feed into a sense of national culture. And there's a national heritage question there. And I think there has to be some questions in relation to what we call the organization of the national portfolio organizations and what actually are organizations and institutions that belong to this country, not just belonging to a particular city here and there. Because as far as I'm concerned, the industrial history of this country is part and parcel of what has built this country. And in terms of thinking about the cultural memory and cultural heritage, it can't exist if we think of 
Certain things happened in Preston, they happened over there, or that happened in Lancashire, that happened in Liverpool, as if these were separate places. They were part of a circulation of trade, which happened not just within this country, but internationally. And I think that one of the things that we've lost in terms of rethinking what Britain is after empire is that Britain, in a way, has kind of shrunk. Because the, the country that my parents came to just after, the, 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 in the closing uh, uh, moments of empire, was a country that was open to the world, which was, we need your labor, we need to also export our goods, our national drink, tea comes from, you know, the leaves come from one part of the world, you know, the milk comes from here, you know, we have people laboring in another part of the world, you know, all the things which mark British culture are part of a, a global trading industrial history. So how we are able to return to that and to an understanding that that is part of what makes Britain British uh, is really key. And I think they just have to fight and there have to be certain priorities have to be put forward. Sally? Yeah, I think um, when I was talking earlier, it's important to understand that I think what you've described is, is, is right. The, um, there's a kind of ecology of arts organisations across the country and it's like a body. You need all of it. You need all of it or it doesn't work. So you can't just take out the spleen and think it's going to be... Apparently you can, actually. But um, let's, 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 pick, let's take a kidney out, you know, and, and, and think it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. So, you know, if um, in Burnley... I'm sorry to pick on Burnley, but I was there yesterday because we're doing a touring programme with them. But um, if in Burnley somebody who... Uh, and actually there was an 11-year-old helping us, Aussie, on that, and I thought he was great and he helped, and you think he could go to art school. He might go to art school because he's seen amazing things in that museum. He's not going to go somewhere else, but that's part of the ecology because then that museum needs to work with Tate Liverpool and it needs to work with um, the icon in Birmingham. You know, that's how we grow a kind of set of cultural conversations. And, you know, you need to collaborate with our colleagues in Lahore and in Karachi, which we do and all over the world. Um, so I think, I think what's... You know, you, you do, I do feel that local authorities want to support the arts, and the Arts Council's done an incredible job over the last 70 years, but we are at risk of letting things fail. And, the, and we're failing our young people in terms of not allowing them an education, when actually, in a post-industrial society, um, the, 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 the cultural industries, the creative industries, represent a huge amount of what we do here now, and what we do very well, so it's a false economy. So I don't know, we need to think differently. And just, Sally, in terms of um, who arts institutions, assuming that the kidney has not been removed and everything's not falling apart, who they reach? Because you mentioned kind of inclusivity and people in Liverpool who don't necessarily access museum or exhibition spaces. We're a divided country at the moment. You know, the Brexit vote was kind of down the middle. It's very clear. In fact, I heard a, a statistic this week which troubled me that more than half of British people feel that the presence of ethnic minorities undermines British culture. Um, so we're obviously at a moment where there's a, a, a specific idea about what Britishness is and, 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 and what should be done to restore it, which is quite sinister. Do you think that arts institutions have been doing a good job of reaching people who are not necessarily um, thinking, celebrating multicultural Britain and open-minded and tolerant to different ideas and cultures? I think arts institutions over the last decade have done some good projects and have um, tried to rethink themselves in line with their communities. And I don't, because I think it's too easy to say to you, no, I think they're doing a terrible job. But I, because I think it is too easy because what that does is rubbish the work that we have done. And I think we've all been part of that. And I feel I've seen real change. So, you know, it's with great pride you see someone like John O'Confra having such incredible success right now. But that's come through a very long period of collaboration with institutions. But I think most institutions now are really worrying about how and what to do in terms of how to have a conversation that both... Uh, both engages with the widest possible public, includes people who feel excluded, removes those barriers that stop people feeling intimidated by art itself, and, um, and also to question themselves about whose culture they really represent. So it, it's a very, so that's an exciting place to be in. Yeah. 
and it's win or lose. It's win. I have to be because I would just weep. Um, No, because it's a win or it's. And I do think that you know it's with intelligence and working together with artists and with audiences. And instead of seeing audiences as audiences, if we think of them as constituents and they're partners in what we do. And the museum offers people a place to do things they can't do anywhere else, have debates that they can't have anywhere else. We have to think about what is our civic and cultural function? What are museums for? They're first and foremost educational institutions for learning about what we value in in the world. So we need to use them better, and that includes all of the constituents, audiences, people. Matab, I think masculinity is part of this picture because um, you know a lot of people who talk about populism will talk about the kind of resurgence of a specific white masculine industrial ideal, really, that, that's maybe mourning the loss of its identity in the North. And you're def- deliberately kind of exploring masculinity in the Asian community, aren't you? How does that fit in with the, the, the bigger picture about Britishness and identity? Yeah, so, you know, they, the, the work I've been making is of working-class Asian men, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a reflection of... work. This, this, this image okay, sure. of the discussion. Yeah. Um, and I think it's hugely important because, you know, with Thatcherism and this, this idea of no society, it really broke down community. And um, as a result, the working class man lost a huge sense of their I- identity, very much so with the, with, the, with the Asian male as well. And I wanted to talk about this idea that we're all, we're all just the same, actually. You know, these, these men are going through the same process. And as much as this work is about Asian men, it's not really about Asian men. You know, this is about urban identity, working class identity, and, and men who are really struggling to find a voice now because they have been left behind. And um, this, is, this is a global phenomenon. This isn't just about England. And when I took the work to America, people were saying, this, I, I can see you know, the, the black Africans connecting to this. I can see the Hispanics connecting to this work and, and the Mexicans. And so you know, this, it is all about working class, the real forgotten men. And, and I think right now, you know, this is the last moment for the, the white working class male to have this, this kind of fight back, to, to, to fight this idea of, no, this is our country or this is our identity. And, and um, yeah, it's, 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 going, it's going to change, I think. So that's that's where that's that's kind of why why where i see the work is is kind of reflecting really this intersection david of masculinity and and race and identity and class it's a it's a complex one where do you see the arts fitting into this and that's a really difficult question i mean my my take on this has, has changed over the years i mean there was a point in which i did uh, follow all of the work that was done under New Labour in terms of, you know, art is for everyone and the importance of culture in terms of building identity. I kind of fell out of love with that, like many people fell out of love with New Labour, unfortunately. I mean, I didn't fall out completely with the whole programme, but the project of art is for everyone, I began to become a bit of disillusioned with. And it took me a long time to replace that art is for everyone with something else, which is art is for anyone. And it's very different. It's a very subtle difference. Because the art is for everyone became a, a, a mantra under which there were big funding, yes, for programs, but which didn't reach actually everyone. Um, and certain people felt that that funding was being foisted upon them. And that actually they had their own cultural forms that they were making, which weren't being recognized with these programs. So to shift away from that to actually saying, well, what we need to do is we need to look at our funding, our institutions, our ecology, I think that's exactly the word, our ecology, which allows anyone to enter that. And that means that in a way we might have to leave ourselves open to failure or open to just very few people, like the young guy in, in Burnley, that, that's... Aussie, um, you know, that, that's the anyone, if you like. He is someone, but he's an anyone. It's not everyone who's, you know, drilled and drummed into, this, into these kinds of programs. So I do think that in relation to that complex conjuncture that you're talking about between masculinity, class, race, um, that it's, it's such a, a cocktail, if you like, that there are a couple of things. One, that the, the state has a certain role, but also we've got to acknowledge that people do know how to create their own culture. 
And it's often about the ways that institutions need to recognise the creation of that culture. I mean, we had Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall, you know, these were writers, post-war writers, who were kind of refusing this notion that art is this part of all of this, part of some elite institution, that these are the only things that art is about. It's about recognising the things that people are already doing in their daily lives, which are art with a small A, if you like, things which are transformative of their everyday lives, and finding ways in which we support and recognise that. And do you see that as part of this new construct that is Britishness, you know, the, the, the new project of what Britain post-Brexit in the 21st century is? The project is a, is a tricky one. I mean, I have to say, come on, bravo to this, this idea that you're going to fight um, international capitalism uh, by constructing some kind of, um, I don't know, constructing some walls around the country in, in, in sometimes a positive way. I don't want to parody this whole programme at all because of some very positive things about it, an end to austerity. It seems like austerity is over, and it seems like you know there's going to be a move to much more borrowing. Certainly, the Americans are going to be borrowing more. It sounds like, it seems like Britain is going to be borrowing more. So you know, it's it's not that the program is without you know strong good foundation. It's just that I'm not sure it recognises the incredible forces that have been unleashed in relation to global capitalism. And I have to say that the art world straddles this because there are parts of the art world which are part of global capitalism, which are part of the international art market and actually great because in some ways we do profit from it, from being, you know, being in a country which is actually still a very powerful country when you're looking globally. You know, the kinds of work that we're looking at, the kinds of work that are in this building are not in every single part of the world. I mean, I was listening to a report earlier today in French TV where they were kind of in, there's a show of Picasso in, Mor in Morocco. I think it's one of their first shows of Picasso in Morocco. They were putting out the flags. And we just walked past, oh, another Picasso show at the R.I., can't they do anything better? You know, we, we just take it for granted. So we are at the centre of, of, of this thing, and we have benefited from it. So I don't think I'd be um, hypocritical to go and say that I'm a, a, you know, totally resistant to international capital. But at the same time, we've got to understand there are other things going on, and it's these other things going on that have to be recognised and that we have to engage with. Sorry. I was thinking while you were talking, I mean, it's 0.02% of treasury spend that we spend on culture. It's nothing. It's nothing. And the return on investment is vast. It's the most entrepreneurial resource, resilient sector that we have. And we are envied all over the world for our culture. In fact, if you just look at the tourist spend coming to our cities, looking at our museums, I think, I think it's crazy to not really... Uh, understand the value and I think any government that's making cuts is making ideological decisions about what they want to cut and change. My huge worry about all of this and it's all tied in together is education and what we're doing in our schools because if we don't educate our young people to engage with culture and to think about uh, having a more, um, instead of having the democratization of culture which would be you know, top-down, teaching people how to appreciate art. Instead of that, if we have cultural democracy, which is about celebrating and making your own culture from the bottom up, if we can reinvent our museums and more along those principles we'll, and stop being afraid of people and how they might change what we do, because they're pretty, they're pretty big old buildings. They've been here for a long time. It's going to be okay. You know, they're not going to fall down, but we do need to... We, and we can test what they're able to perform, these buildings. So I think, it, I think... I feel optimistic like you do, but I feel very, very worried about the lack of attention to education and the lack of attention to how we're training our young people both to value culture, because they're not being taught to value it, but also to value their own culture and to learn how to express themselves, you know, in terms of creativity in their writing and their thinking. This is how we get an entrepreneurial nation, actually. Matab, do you feel there's a new generation who are, by hook or by crook, kind of using visual art to express themselves, to kind of just make a stake for what this country is to them? Yeah, I think there is, um, and I, I guess the only example I can give you is when I, you know, when we opened the show at Autograph and I met all these young um, <clears throat> millennials and 
you know, there's so many contacted me afterwards and they want, they've got their own blogs and they've got their own, you know, specific websites and magazines. And, and I was just saying, yeah, let's do it. And let's just keep going. And let's, let's, and let's do all the interviews, all these off little radio shows that they have. And I'm, I'm really hopeful. I think, you know, the, the technology is, is, has opened up such a, a wonderful network of, um, of young aspiring artists and it, it, it's, it's in every single way it could be painting, it could just be music and, and um, yeah so the, you know and you don't need resources if you're going to do it on your own, when, you know when I started I, you know, it's, I was, I was I'm doing, doing it all by myself for a few years and um, so I, I, I am very much hopeful but I think it's about us making sure that we nurture those young talents. And it's, it's never about the, you know, I think it's just as much about mentorship and encouragement. And, and, um, and that's what I'm trying to kind of give back a little bit, really. Isn't there a kind of paradox here? Because, you know, you've both spoken about how art being part of the globalized, you know, hyper-connected capitalist world can be beneficial. I mean, you, you've, had, you've been abroad and, and had recognition from your art that's helped you gain traction here, haven't you, Matar? But at the same time, it's that kind of international globalised world that is creating the backlash that is seeing working class British Asian masculinity in crisis, that's seeing working class post-industrial voters choosing to leave the EU. How can we reconcile the fact that we need this, we benefit from this world, but at the same time, we resent it? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Yeah, sorry, that's a um, tricky one throwing at the end. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, recently, I, you know, Photo London was just on and I connected with an incredibly um, powerful contemporary art space in Dubai and it's, it's going there. My work's going to go there and, and I was telling David about it and so th- th- it's going to be a slightly difficult conversation to have that's because... It's, yeah, it is. And the way I try and justify it to myself is that I want to immortalise us as fine art objects and I want my work to be collected so we can be part of the art historical canon and the narrative. And, and we, need that, we need that relationship. It's hard to palette. It's really difficult. Do you think other artists would have the same dilemma about that <coughs> as you're having? Don't, isn't it just part of the course that that's what you want for your art? Do you think that because of your heritage, because of the community you're representing do you feel a, a kind of specific guilt about that maybe you know because uh, yeah i'm i'm very privileged and very lucky to to have this opportunity and but you know i'm i'm hoping there's a way that i can give back not just in terms of representation but further down the line in other ways into so, yeah there is a guilt there's a there's a there's a definite <laughs> di- difficult place but i'm i'm excited i'm i'm you know i've worked i've worked hard as well and it's, it's i'm not going to apologize for that but it's, it is tricky because here I am photographing very impoverished communities, people who talk about the difficulties of their lives. Um, you know, they struggle on a daily basis and I'm immortalizing them as final objects and then benefiting from them as well. So it is, it is a little bit tricky, but it's, it's wonderful at the same time because I'm inviting these people to the shows to, to, to make them feel represented. And I think the, the, the idea of just giving them a voice, giving them that, that opportunity to be part of this narrative is, is really powerful. And, and I just have to take whatever comes my way. So, you know, and yeah, it's difficult. Well, it's nearly time to open up to questions, but I just want a kind of final thought from, from both of you. I mean, Sally, this, I recognize this almost as a bit of a black tax, you know, that if you come from a minority background or you're representing working class, communities you feel guilty about success in the art world is that something you recognize i think success in the art world if you measured it against success in the commercial world is not very <laughs> successful you know i think you don't really don't think you need to feel guilty i think that you know um just to really put a, uh, some figures on it for you uh, the average salary for an artist is nine thousand pounds a year that is not very successful in terms of being able to live. So how do you think an artist earning that lives in London? How is that even beginning to be possible? So I think, you know, we ask our artists to make work for us. We ask them to go out on a limb. We ask them to represent us and themselves and the difficulties that they face in their lives. But we ask them to do it for no money. And then when they sell something, we give them 50% back. It's hard and it's a terribly difficult job. It's not a privilege to be an artist, it's a job. And you do a job for all of us and you do something incredibly important for our culture. Without artists, we don't 
have a culture that we can understand or speak to. So I think, you know, I think it's, I think people should know the figures a little bit more because it, it's probably one of the most underpaid professions in this country. Of course, some artists make some money, but it's such a minority. And it comes often very late in the day. Lubaina Himid has spent her whole life making work. And she's a brilliant teacher. And not only that, she's been building an archive in Lancaster for many, many years, which is really, really important. And she, yeah, here she is. And how old is she? 63, I believe. And suddenly she gets her recognition. Bit late in the day, in my opinion, but fantastic to see her have this. And I hope with this comes some financial success because she deserves it. So I don't know, I don't think artists should ever apologize. I think you do a brilliant job, and I don't know many people who would work as hard as artists do for nothing. So just maybe a bit of comparative context. We, we, we look to our artists to help redefine our identity at moments of crisis, which maybe we'll disagree about whether we're in a, a moment of crisis. I feel like we are. Um, are we making, are we asking this un, under impossible circumstances at the moment, and, and how does that compare to the rest of the world? I think it depends on what we mean by artists, and I think it just goes back to other parts of our conversation about the art with a capital A, a and the art with a small a. And if you're thinking about you know, the art of the international superhighway, that's you know, a success that you know, is the sort that cuts in two ways, because there's also what I call the art of the local byway. And actually, going back to that whole question about how do you reconcile those two worlds, you know, the superhighway and the local byway, I'm not sure it's about reconciliation but it is about recognition. And I think that if we're able to say, well, actually, yes, the artist who reaches the heights, who gets to the Turner Prize, that they have that in level of international recognition, that's one thing. But it's not the only thing. And that there are actually other paths and other ways of making work which are relevant, legitimate, useful, enriching, that these are the things which our institutions want to engage with, that these are the things that we want to debate and, uh, and think through and use as tools to transform our lives and contribute to our cultural imaginary. Now, I think that's something that's worthwhile. So reconciliation, let's leave that for the angels, but recognition, I think that's the responsibility of every human being. That's a brilliant way to end. Is there anyone with a question? Hi, um, thank you for the discussion. It's very interesting. Um, I just wanted to ask, to what extent do you think having an identifiable British identity is important in today's society? And how do we go about creating a British identity without having something that smacks of Cameron's uh, British values education policy, which is slightly controversial. That's a great question. Uh, David, you seem primed to answer it. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's a wonderful question. Uh, thank you for asking it. And, um, and I want to respond to this in, in a way that it's a challenge for me. And I take it kind of almost as a personal challenge. I think it's a challenge for, for many of us in this room right now. And I, I'm going to start just with a point that was made a while ago by um, Salman Rushdie, where he said that the British don't know their history because so much of it took place overseas. And I think the question about British identity is not just about the kinds of cultural forms that take place within these beloved isles. And this is the one thing about Britishness which we've turned, what we touched on so many times, going back to our uh, museums our, of our industrial history, talking about the lives of, of, of people in Birmingham, in Liverpool, in Manchester, in, in London, that all of these lives and the things that they've made, the cultural forms that people have made, are related to things which are beyond these beloved isles. So it's constantly about a question of what has circulated, where have we been, and to where can we go? And I think if we're asking those kinds of questions about Britishness, about Britishness as kind of like as a port, as a, as a door that has a hinge, it swings in different ways, and sometimes the door is closed, and sometimes we have to accept that the door is closed. And I think this is maybe a, a tricky thing to say, that there are sometimes moments in which nations close themselves down and sometimes those things are necessary as long as those things don't are not perpetual they're not perpetuated and that they're there as a way for the nation to come to understand itself more closely i mean last thing i'll just talk about is is, is um, france fanon 
a very radical and interesting writer, um, writing about um, French Algeria and, and the war in Algeria, etc. But one of the interesting things he said is that a nation has to go through a period of national consciousness before it can open itself up to a moment of internationalism. So the national consciousness moment is absolutely crucial, but it's not there for itself. It's there in order to the nation to know itself and then open itself to the world. So if it's done in that spirit, then I think a lot can be achieved. That's fascinating, David. Matab, do you feel that this is a moment then, if it's a kind of permissible insularity, that, that do we need to define what Britishness is? Is that what you are doing? I guess I am, and but I, I totally agree with David and um, this idea of hybridity and internationalism. I think that's where we are we are going, and that's the that's the kind of conversation that I'm trying to have with my work. You know, we, that these men constantly get told this idea that um, are you British? Are you you know? But then at the same time being told that they're not British enough, and and um, I just want to kind of move that conversation forward, really. Um, so yeah, we're in a really exciting point actually where we are figuring out who we are and yeah i just feel internationalism is is the next space yeah thank you thanks that was a great question are there any other um thank you very much this sort of follows on from what you were just talking about in terms of um trying to come to an understanding of well of the past you uh, david specifically was talking about um memory and then imagination one thing that I think heritage in general, so that's arts and, um, and also galleries, has been quite reluctant to address is the history of colonialism and how that has affected, I think, our sense of national consciousness now. I think I've seen quite a lot of parallels in this. I think there's quite an arrogance on the British part to think, oh, of course we're going to go to the EU and of course they're going to give us the best deal that we can, that, that, you know, because we deserve it, because we're British. And I think that carries through from a cultural memory of us ruling the waves. And I think that some institutions, um, there's been some great work by the Welcome Collection to try and address that and have people to have conversations about marginalised communities re-engaging with the objects that may have been taken from um, countries that we plundered, to be quite frank. Um, and also around the Commonwealth Games, Glasgow is fantastic at trying to address the issues particularly around slavery. But the British Museum, for example, is not really addressing that issue, I think, because it opens up so many questions about returning the Elgin marbles and all that kind of stuff. But do you think if we had that real open, honest discussion within institutions about that cultural memory, that would help us in moving forward with a more diverse idea of national identity? I think um, it's a very important question, and it's a very difficult one for institutions, of course. But... Um because, because of the way that works are acquired, let's say acquired or taken, let's say, maybe, oh, um, it's sometimes very difficult to repatriate works. And um, one of the things that I think shouldn't be underestimated in any of these discussions is the soft power of cultural diplomacy. So when governments meet, quite often when a delegation from the UK goes to China to do a deal uh, around the kind of... Um, trade agreement and industrial strategy for China, they will take with them a panel of people from the cultural sector who represent museums and galleries and biennials actually and other organisations and what happens is as, as part of the agreement there's a kind of soft cultural um, diplomacy that happens as well which can be about the movement of artists and goods. So I think if institutions can make that more transparent I think it becomes a much more interesting set of discussions. And I, I just think that um, it's more complicated than we think because, um, you know, what's happening in the world right now, actually, there are things in, our, in the British Museum that, it, that it's a good job that they're there because where they've come from has been completely destroyed in the world. And so, you know, actually, it's not, it's not good that they were taken in the first place, but thankfully it means that we have some artefacts Remaining, even from even if you look at what happened in Egypt, in Cairo, in the museum there, where things have been destroyed. But those conversations need to be had openly, and they need to be had together with people from other places in the world. And I think, um, I think, from what I see, lots of institutions are trying to do that, 
But it is a process of unlearning. Can I just come to you on that, Matab, because, um, and I'll come to you after David. Um, it seems to me, and a lot of my work has been about this, and it was a great question about our failure to really honestly deal with the legacy of empire and the relationship between empire and mass immigration after the end of the war. And it seems, it strikes me that the, the people you photographed are kind of on the front line of that, not really feeling British, but also not feeling um, that they're from somewhere else that they can define or go to. Do you relate that to a kind of a, a, a historical honesty that, that needs to happen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, when, you know, going to school and we, we never, we really learned about, you know, the British Raj or any, any of these things. It's like, almost like amnesia. And, you know, the idea in, in the First World War, there was over a hundred, I think it was, I think the figures are 250,000 Muslims were part of that. Um, campaign and none of these things get spoken about so there is there's this disconnect really and when you know you, I talk to the young men and ask them about their identity and where why is it that they're assimilating towards black culture more than western culture they talk about imperialism colonialism the fact that they what happened in the past and and in, in a way they don't want to connect to western identity really and it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it, I think we need to have a more of a honest um, historical conversation about our, our shared histories. And I think once we have that, then, we, then as a nation, we can feel connected. And, and because after shelter and food, what do we do? We tell stories. And our stories have been so disjointed that we'd have no connection with each other right now. And uh, there are some amazing people out there who are starting to have these types of conversations. And I think once we can start to do that, then there, there will be a greater sense of connection, really. Yes, I just, um, just wanted to come back to, to this, this point about the institutions and particularly in relation to... Um, you know, cultural repatriation. Because there's been a lot of work that has been um, done done on this. Um, a woman called Clementine Delis, for instance, has, has done some, some work around this. One of the things I've, in, in the debate that I've had with her is about this kind of question of um, trying to get away from the from preoccupation with ownership, which I think really does kind of take seize the debate. We own these, or they own them, or they don't own them. And to try to get to a sense much more of custodianship and who's actually looking after these goods on whose behalf. Uh, and one of the things that we're kind of trying to talk about is trying to get to a stage, again, of moving forward in almost an idea of like a world bank of objects or a world museum. Exactly, where works actually are travel from country to country on a, an understanding of reciprocity and mutual exchange. So by those means then, you kind of get away from uh, saying that actually they have to be here, we have to hold on to them, we're the only people who can look after them. And to also to a point of recognizing, well actually certain things do necessarily belong to or represent a certain country. So you kind of get both things, but you have to have a kind of sense of international trust and goodwill in order to make that happen. That's fascinating. We could talk more about that, but I, I, we don't have very much time left. Are there any more questions? Yes. Um, I really like the question about the cultural memory because I was just wondering whether it's something that's so painful for all of us to come to terms with and to talk about. But also, as I was listening to the panel, I just um, I felt a sense of disconnect sometimes because I was just wondering whether um, we can create a space to hold the fact that they might be different forms of British identity because there's a sense that they might be an ideal British identity that we're aspiring to. And as a diasporic woman, um, I've come to this country with a form of my own colonial identity that I'd like to celebrate as being British. And it might look completely different to someone else's identity who was perhaps um, an indigenous British or English person, and that's all fine. So can we accommodate the idea or thinking that they might be different forms? You know, I'm Guyanese, which um, a large part of my identity um, has the Indian, indigenous, African diasporic people, Chinese, you know, true multiculturalism. And so that's what I think I'd like to sort of say. Um, who would like to answer that first? I mean, I, and I think 
just to add to it, is there a danger when we talk about constructing British identity that we're kind of reducing it to a single, a single narrative? I mean, I think everyone in this room is different to each other. So, um, and I, it, that's an oversimplification. But if it's not about multiple perspectives and difference and understanding difference and building a society that can define uh, itself on its tolerance and acceptance of different cultures and how we can, how we can uh, you know, because that makes us different from some other places in the world already. It's not possible, you know, in... in in Dubai, for example, where you're going to show your work, it's not legal to be gay in Dubai. Mm. Just, just saying. So you know, like, okay. you know, that makes them a less tolerant society. You can get married here. Not, not that I'm, you know, but I'm just saying. I think that there are things that we've achieved in our culture that we need to not lose. Yeah, I just want to come in, come in on on that, Sally, because I think that's very important to underline the kind of question about difference yeah. and the recognition of multiplicity. But saying that, one has to be, we have to be really careful because you know when we talk about pluralism, for instance, pl plurality, many different kind of views and many different uh, ways of thinking about Britishness. We're not trying to flatten everything out and say everything gets is you know different in the in the same way. And I think the critiques of multiculturalism, which we do have to take on board, were one are some of the ways in which the differences between people were not recognised also in relation to the asymmetries of power. So it was seen that everybody was different and we were all different in kind of the same way and it was just some kind of multicoloured Benetton kind of version of culture. And that ignored major differences between people and it's trying to get your head around the idea that things can be different and unequal as long as we're all moving towards something that is just. But by just pretending that we're all equal and different and everything's fine, you ignore the injustice and therefore you ignore the work of justice. And justice is work to be done. Justice is not just some idea that sits in the world that you just somehow, it floats from on a high. Justice is the work that each and one of us has to do in order to address the asymmetries, the differences, the lack that we have to recognize in each other. And if we don't have those difficult conversations with one another, we don't understand what those asymmetries are. We don't understand what I've got, you haven't got, what you've got that I haven't got. Let's be honest and say there are differences in this room about what people have got and what they haven't got. I mean, there's some much better looking people in this room than me, for a start. But, uh, no, there are. <laughs> I can see them. Um, well, this debate, so. that, that particular debate will carry on afterwards. That, that seems like an excellent note, note to end on. Um, we're out of time. Thank you for being a brilliant audience with great questions. And, and maybe I could have a round of applause for my brilliant panel as well. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.